The information and opinions presented in this ARC Energy Ideas podcast are provided for informational purposes only and are subject to the disclaimer link in the show notes. This is the ARC Energy Ideas podcast with Peter Tertzakian and Jackie Forrest, exploring trends that influence the energy business. Welcome to the ARC Energy Ideas Podcast. I'm Jackie Forrest. And I'm Peter Trudzakian. Welcome back. Boy, it was a nice weekend, wasn't it? You know, in general, this fall has been amazing. Probably one of the nicest falls I've spent in Western Canada. Yeah, which is not surprising here in Southern Alberta because it's not all that well known that Southern Alberta has one of the highest number of sun hours per year in all of Canada. In fact, I think it does. Yeah, and there's a lot of energy that comes from there's the sun. A lot of energy that comes from the sun. It's no surprise we put that solar energy to work in more and more solar farms and solar panels. We've talked about that a lot, but we're going to talk about the sun in a completely different way today, a very exciting way. And that's a nice segue into our special guest straight from London, England. Arthur Terrell is the author of the new book, The Star Builders, Nuclear Fusion and the Race to Power the Planet. Arthur is a PhD and researcher in plasma physics writes about fusion energy in a way that makes sense for the average person. And I must say, if you haven't bought and read this book and you're a lover of energy, you should, because it's so easy to read. Let's talk about it. Let's get into it. Welcome, Arthur, because we're delighted to talk about fusion energy today. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me onto the show. Very generous summary of the book as well, which is fantastic. Just in starting, I do want to just say a note to listeners that I'm speaking in a personal capacity today and uh, really excited to talk more about fusion. Great. Okay, great. Well, I love the book. I learned a lot. And um, maybe just to start out, you can tell us a little bit about yourself. You were a researcher in plasma physics, but now you've gotten into more writing about it and, and educating people. Tell us a bit about yourself and how you came to write this book. So I did my PhD in plasma physics at Imperial College London where a group working on plasma physics, which is very much related to fusion as a field, they have been working on that topic since basically the 1940s, almost as early as fusion as a kind of research discipline began. So it's a really exciting place to be. One of the frustrations I had when I was there was that there was this extraordinary field going on with some of the most extreme conditions encountered in any science done on Earth even in the solar system sometimes. And people outside of the physics department or outside of a few big laboratories around the world just didn't know about it. And that seemed a great shame because not only is it really interesting from a scientific point of view in terms of the extremes and the machines and the kind of things that people have had to work out to get this stuff going in experiments, but it's also fascinating from the point of view of energy and how we kind of choose to power the planet today and how we might choose to power it tomorrow. And those questions have never been more important than they are today with the looming spectre of climate change and the kind of energy crisis. So I wanted to bring that story to a much wider audience, and that's how I got into writing about it. Again, your book, The Star Builders, is uh, a really common-sense, easy-to-read way of understanding about nuclear fusion, which is really the physics of bringing and making an artificial star on Earth. The sun is a star, and we try and get its radiated energy and convert it to electrical power. But if we can actually bring a small sliver of the sun here on Earth and contain it, then all of a sudden it's a huge game changer. 
in terms of thinking about how to power the planet ad infinitum, as they would say <laughs> in Latin. And so let's talk about that. I'd like to just start at the top, Arthur, if you don't mind, and just talk about what is fusion energy. So nuclear fusion is a reaction, and it's one of the most fundamental in the universe. It was around in the Big Bang. It is the reaction that powers stars and makes them shine. And it's even there when stars die and go supernova as well. Um, so it's actually really, really common in the universe, and it's a lot less common on Earth, at least so far. And essentially, all that happens in nuclear fusion is that the very centre of an atom, the very dense bit called a nucleus, combines with another nucleus and fuses together. And this happens with lighter atoms, and they fuse together to make bigger atoms. And with the right ingredients, with the right type of nuclei to begin with, what happens is not only do you get a bigger atom out at the end, but you get loads and loads of energy released as well. And actually, the energy is released according to one of the most famous equations in physics, E equals mc squared. Yeah, I remember as a physics student doing those calculations and I was fascinated by it, then pondering how it is that you slam two atoms together and you get more energy out of it. It's really fascinating. So what are the advantages then of this type of reaction if we can replicate it on Earth as compared to the standard nuclear energy that we've been using on Earth for, I don't know, last 80 years, is it, or so? That's a really good question. Why should we bother? You know, we've already got one type of nuclear energy technology, so do we really need another? I want to say that I'm a really big fan of nuclear fission. The world's going to reach net zero carbon emissions. We're going to need a lot of fission energy. And it's really notable that those countries who've managed to reduce their reliance on fossil fuels are using a lot of fission energy. So I'm thinking of France in particular. But fusion has some interesting properties, which I think in the long run might make it more attractive than fission, if it can be developed as a commercially viable energy source. Of course, that's a big, big caveat. So the first thing that I think sets fusion apart from fission, and by the way, just as a reminder, fission is when you take one of those a really big nucleus and split it apart. So they're kind of cousins, uranium, plutonium, those big, big, unstable nuclei. So they're kind of nuclear cousins, one's combining, one's splitting apart. So fusion has a big advantage when it comes to meltdown. So that's one of the big risks that we think about with nuclear fission reactors. Actually, they're not all that common. And actually, if you look at the statistics, you know, fission reactors are, are pretty safe. In fact, they're one of the safest forms of energy. But certainly there's a public perception risk. And also, you know, some reactors have gone through meltdown. But fusion is a very difficult process to start. And it's a very easy process to stop. So it doesn't have this same situation that you can get into where there's a lack of control. So there is zero risk of meltdown or anything like it happening. So that's a, a really good point in favour of safety. The second reason why fusion is a bit different and potentially has some advantages is about nuclear proliferation. Because if we think one of the risks that you might worry about if we have nuclear materials going around is that they could be used to construct either a fission bomb or a fusion bomb, a hydrogen bomb. The thing that you need to know about nuclear weapons is that it doesn't matter whether it's a fission bomb or a, or a fusion bomb, they both need fissile material. So they both involve some fission at some point in how the mechanism works. So at the moment, some road states can potentially use a peaceful nuclear fission program as a cover to refine and produce the fissile material that they need to produce nuclear weapons of various kinds. Now, that is a complete contrast with nuclear fusion, where 
fissile material of the kind that you have to have for a bomb has no business being anywhere near the power plant. You don't need it at all to make a fusion reactor work. So there's no way that you can take the ingredients that you'd put into a fusion reactor and, and turn those into a nuclear weapon. Can I just interject to um, clarify what you're saying here? So fission reactors use like uranium, which is like 138, I think it's 238 on the periodic table. So it's got 238 atoms that are so packed together, it's unstable. The reaction is such that it creates heat, but also creates byproducts that can be used in atomic weapons. Whereas in fusion, as opposed to breaking apart gigantic elements, you're starting with hydrogen, which is element number one, and slamming them together to build up helium, which is element number two. And there are no nuclear byproducts. There are, I mean, hydrogen as an input, simplistically, is completely benign. And so, therefore, it's not only far safer from a nuclear proliferation geopolitical standpoint, but it's also far cleaner in a sense that there's none of these heavy atomic nuclear waste products created. Is that a good summary? So I was going to come on and talk about radioactive waste as a separate issue. But just to be clear, it's less about the kind of inputs and outputs in terms of proliferation than it is about fissile material. Every kind of known construction of any nuclear weapon, it has to involve some kind of fissile material. So those elements like uranium or, or plutonium. If you wanted to do nefarious things with a fusion reactor and you were minded to do that, you could probably think of a way to do it. But it would probably involve fissile material. The important point is that you could ensure the power plants were kind of fissile material free. For our listeners' sake, you know, when I, I was envisioning this sun and this mini sun, can you tell us the size of the sun that people are trying to replicate here on Earth with some of the projects that are out there? Is it like a golf ball size or a basketball? <laughs> In some ways, talking about the sun is misleading because, of course, the sun is the biggest object in the solar system. So everyone's thinking, where is this huge, enormous ball of fiery nuclei? And should I be worried about my neighborhood? So when we're talking about building the sun, what we're actually talking about is recreating similar pressures. So 300 billion times the pressure on the surface of the Earth. And similar temperatures or actually even more extreme temperatures and sometimes similar densities to the sun. But we're doing this on really small scales, or I should say the scientists are doing this on really small scales. And that's a relief because we couldn't handle the scale of the sun. But it's also a challenge because the sun scale of mass that it has produces a gravity that keeps the fuel for fusion trapped. So actually we're working with tiny scales on Earth. One of the experiments, one of the types of fusion, something called inertial confinement fusion, works with fuel capsules that are just a few millimetres across, so that's about the size of the pupil in your eye. And at actually peak compression in the middle of the experiment, when it's most sun-like, it's actually just a few millionths of a metre across. And then the other type of fusion that's popular is something called magnetic confinement fusion. Um, there's a chamber which has probably dimensions of about kind of four metres by three metres, but it's actually donut-shaped. But it has actually a tiny amount of matter inside it, about 0.1 milligram. And the density of the gas in the chamber is just about a millionth that of air. So we're actually talking about small amounts of mass here and relatively small volumes too. And could you just tell us, I know there's various technologies, but what is one of the highest temperatures that uh, is set here or is it trying to be achieved? Because I, that blew me away in the book, the temperature. So brace yourselves because the temperatures 
that the magnetic confinement reactors get to are the hottest in the solar system. The hottest place in the solar system regularly is not in the centre of the sun, as you might think. That's a relatively chilly 15 million degrees Celsius. But in a small village in Oxfordshire called Cullen, where one of the most advanced magnetic confinement fusion reactors is, it's called BET, which regularly reaches temperatures around 100 million degrees Celsius. And actually, fusion, using this method of magnets, is aiming to reliably and consistently get to around 150 million degrees Celsius. That's pretty hot. <laughs> yeah, so it's not surprising. You don't need a lot of stuff to generate an incredible amount of heat. And we'll talk about the engineering challenges here momentarily. So as you said, this is nothing really new, the thinking about nuclear fusion. It goes all the way back to the 1940s, I think, and inspired you as a student. And you know, even when I was studying physics, that was a joke. In fact, you talk about the joke in the book. Nuclear fusion is always 30 years away. Is that still the joke? Are we still 30 years away? Or like, <laughs> uh, is it no longer a joke, right? <laughs> it's no longer a joke. It's more of a cliche. So much that the editors of the magazine, The Economist, have actually banned it from their articles. So I think we need to retire the joke for a few reasons. One is that while fusion definitely hasn't been plane sailing in the past, it kind of ignores the huge progress that's being made. So to give you an idea of that progress, it looks a bit like Moore's law. So we are getting closer all the time. And just since 2011, the energy released by experiments on the USA's fusion machine, a titled inertial confinement fusion machine, has increased well over a thousand times. So we're making impressive progress, but of course it is slow relative to what people have thought at various times. But I think they were always wrong to think about this as, uh, you know, it's X years away. Because if you just sit around and do nothing for 30 years, then you aren't going to make any progress at all. And how fast you're going in making progress on a technology depends, like any human endeavor, on how much investment, how much effort, and how many people are working on it. And if you want a kind of recent example of this, you don't need to look very far because I think most vaccines that humanity has ever developed have taken of the order of a decade, at least. And when the coronavirus crisis started, we all collectively, as a species, said, hang on, this is something we really need to sort quickly. Let's do it fast. And people were able to bring together relatively new, untested technologies and develop a vaccine within a year, which is just extraordinary. But part of that was taking a bet on a new technology. And part of it was just the will was there. The investment was there. The people were there. The effort was there. So we shouldn't think about it in years. We should think about how far, how much effort we're putting in and how much progress we've made. There's been an enormous amount of progress. And we're really very close to seeing a scientific demonstration of fusion very soon. Now, one of the challenges has been that most of the time, the amount of power that goes in is more than the amount of power that comes out. And I know there was a pretty big news in August from the National Ignition Facility based in uh, Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. And that made a lot of news, actually. It even made like the cable news here and the local radio. Why was this significant? And are we getting closer to getting to that point where the power out is, is greater than the power in? I think we first need to talk about something that confuses a lot of people 
And actually, it's one of the causes of those frustrations about fusion, you know, always being around the corner, which is what we actually mean by achieving fusion, because that's really important for understanding this big, big experimental breakthrough that's happened. And I think there are really kind of three different stages of fusion that, that we should talk about, you know, achieving. The first is something called experimental net energy gain, which sounds a bit jargony, but it just means did you get more energy out of your experiment than you put in? The second one is Warbrug or facility net energy gain. So that's kind of like, did you get more energy out than you put into your experiment? Plus, you know, the computers, the lights, energy into the batteries that needed to be charged up to actually run the experiment in the background. So anything that isn't the kind of reactor chamber. And then the final one is more energy out from fusion than was put in for a power plant. This is a viable energy source that could deliver energy to the grid. And, you know, scientists are very much just aiming at that first one for now. And I think it's really important to make that point. Now, in terms of the experiment, this was a big experiment run by the US government on a machine called the uh, National Ignition Facility. And it's super exciting because, and this was in August, so this is hot off the press, as you say. So big experiment, Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California. And what they did was they broke their own record for energy released from fusion experiment um, 25 times over. And what they saw was 70% of the energy that they put in coming back out. Now, people have been trying to get to 100% energy out for energy in. So that first level, that scientific net energy gain, as we said, since the 1940s. For the audience, understand the 70%. And this notion of energy in and energy out. So in your prologue of your book, it just grips you when you read that thing. Because you know, there's this massive amount of electricity that gets funneled into lasers. And the lasers split apart into 192 different channels. And then ultimately get focused and zap onto this marble-sized diamond-encased hydrogen pellet. And so the amount of electricity required, I think it was like a terawatt or something crazy amount of electricity, that amount of energy going in to start the reaction has to be matched by the amount of heat energy that's coming out of this, I think he's called it a pupil-sized pellet. Is that what we're talking about, but that we've only achieved 70% heat out versus electricity in? That's right. And it's actually worse than that in the sense that I'm talking about the experiment. So I'm ignoring some of the electricity that the facility pulled down off the grid, you know, to keep the lights on or to charge up the capacitor banks that help run the laser and all of that stuff. So it's even kind of worse than that. And the power, the, the electricity you mentioned, I think when I'm talking about that in the book, I'm actually talking about a very, very small amount of time. So if you have a lot of energy in a very small amount of time, you can have extraordinary amounts of power. And that's how the lasers deliver more power than the entire US national grid because it's squeezed into 20 billionths of a second. And this is what we're trying to do. And guess what? Recreating these conditions that you would find in stars is really tricky. And it takes a lot of energy. And it takes a lot of energy to get those particles to collide because actually they're repelling each other. They're positively charged. And you have to put a lot of energy in as a kind of investment. But then if it works, what you hope to find, what the scientists are working towards is getting a lot more energy out. Now, at the moment, they're just looking to get one unit of energy out for energy put in. But the ultimate aim, and they think that this is possible on the National Ignition Facility, is to get 10 times as much energy out as was put in, or 30 times, or even higher than that. 
So who's leading this race? That's the National Ignition Facility. I've read the Chinese are making some real progress. Your book talks about that. Let's talk about the race to get there. So it's really interesting how much is happening at the moment. You know, there are breakthroughs on all kinds of different fronts, whether it's with the magnetic approach, whether it's with the inertial approach that in this case uses lasers at the National Ignition Facility, whether it's about the materials, whether it's about understanding what's going on in simulations with computers. It's just been such an exciting couple of years. Or the private sector and the explosion of the private sector. So who do I think is ahead? That was the question you asked, and I'm sure people are really interested in that. In terms of demonstrating scientific net energy gain, this goal that scientists have had, and entrepreneurs and engineers and even governments, since the 1940s, the National Ignition Facility is really close. So these processes aren't linear. Well, let me put it this way. The last big record that NIF achieved was getting to 3%. So they went from 3% to 70%. And as I mentioned earlier, the breakthroughs that they've been making have seen them increase it by a factor of a thousand over a decade. So, you know, they're not very many improvements away from getting a factor of one out for one in or even 10. They're really close to that. So I think they'll be the first to get to scientific energy game first. Delivering fusion as an energy source isn't just about scientific energy gain. It's about doing it on the scale of a power plant, and it's about making it commercially viable and making it repeatable and consistent and stable, and all of those things that you need if this is going to be a bona fide energy source. And whether inertial fusion is the right technology for that is too early to say. You know, I think the private sector is going to have a big, big role in making this commercially viable, in you know, miniaturizing the technology, perhaps, in making it more reliable. And because we don't know which method of doing fusion is going to be the most successful in the long run, I think it's fantastic that at the moment there are lots of different breakthroughs going on in lots of different ways of doing it. Yeah, Arthur, that's one thing I think a lot of folks don't realize. Like, I think we all knew there were governments. We hear about that facility in France and and those sorts of long-term projects. But you had mentioned, maybe you can remind everyone, how much new capital has come in for private companies? You call them the new star builders. And who's behind some of these companies? It's been perhaps the greatest change in fusion in recent years, probably in the last five years or so has been the explosion of interest by the private sector, which is interesting in itself because it suggests that the market has some confidence that some of these technologies are going to be valuable at some point, which is you know a change from perhaps 10 years ago. So the Fusion Industry Association, which was recently formed, estimate that around $2 billion US dollars of private sector money has flooded into Fusion in the last few years from a wide range of investors. So you've got the kind of more entrepreneurial tech people who you might not be surprised to hear are investing in a scheme like this. So people like Jeff Bezos and and Peter Thiel. You've got the kind of big organizations who can afford to fund some of this stuff like Lockheed Martin and Goldman Sachs has been associated with one fusion startup as well. But you've also got people like Legal and General and the Canadian government who you might think have a lower risk appetite than some of the other people I've mentioned. And even some of the fossil fuel firms like Chevron have been associated with some of the new fusion startups. So quite a wide range of investors. Right. And some of these investors, you know, they want to invest in this as a solution to climate change. And that's part of their drivers as well. 
But you know, one thing that's interesting is many of these new startups are promising to deliver what the government couldn't, like saying they will have a commercial fusion power plant in the early 2030s. Do you think that it's realistic when you think how long it's taken the government to get to this point that these small startups, and although $2 billion sounds like a lot, that's nothing compared to what the governments have spent on this technology. That's quite right, yes. So the private sector firms, they're not starting from scratch here. They can borrow from decades of public investment on fusion. And that's right. That's often how we you know, see innovation proceeding. So that's a good thing. So they're not starting from scratch. And are they going to be able to create a reactor in a few years? I think that they're doing some really interesting things. I think they're trying out parts of technology space that's outside the risk appetite of these bigger government labs. And that's really good. You know, never say never. This is a really difficult problem, but who's to say that they can't, starting where they're starting with decades of public research to build on, they can't find a kind of quick way of doing it. I'm sceptical. I think at the moment, the evidence suggests that the big public sector labs are kind of orders of magnitude ahead. But as we've seen with coronavirus, as we saw with powered flight, as we've seen with various other things in human history, sometimes innovation can go quickly and in an unexpected way. And I've been impressed by some of the science these places are doing. They've been snapping up people from respected PhD programs in fusion sciences. So it's going to be really interesting to see what happens as the time rolls around for us to check some of these claims. So energy in versus energy out is one of the technical challenges where it seems to be getting close. But the other big challenge is there's no physical material on earth that can contain 100 million degrees celsius or whatever so you have to contain the miniature sun in a magnetic bottle so that it doesn't really touch anything and that's very challenging can you talk about that and the progress that's being made once you get the reaction started then you have to contain and feed it talk about that this is perhaps the most challenging part of fusion and it's why it's taken so many years. If you get enough fissile material, think about nuclear fission, why that's so much easier. If you get enough nuclear fissile material in one place, it just starts reacting by itself. Whereas fusion, you have to provide these conditions of temperature, density, which are really, really extreme. So there are actually three ways to do it. Magnetic fields are just one of them. The first you can see if you go outside in the middle of the day and look up at the sky, if you're in a less cloudy place than I am right now anyway, that is the gravity. And that is what helps fusion to work the scale of the sun and the sun. So we can't do that on Earth. So we have kind of a few other options, but the two main ones, one of them is magnetic fields, because we need to create this invisible bottle. This hot stuff can't touch the walls at all, because if it did, it would dump all of its energy and it would stop doing the fusion reactions. It would get too cold. The energetic particles would escape. So because the nuclei that do these reactions are charged, positively charged nuclei of atoms, um, we can build a trap made out of magnetic fields in various different configurations, but a popular one is a kind of donut shape, and just make the particles stick to the inside of this magnetic web where they react without touching any of the walls. That's one way. The other way is to forget about trying to do this very length of time and just create the conditions for fusion for just a tiny brief second, well, actually much shorter than a second, just create those conditions for a fleeting moment where the reactions just have enough time to happen because nuclear reactions happen very quickly. And that's what happens on the NIST. They use lasers to smash 
a small pellet of fuel, it implodes, and for a few nanoseconds, it has just the right conditions for fusion. A few nanoseconds is a very long time in nuclear physics. So those are the main ways. They all have real challenges. And do the environmental groups buy into this as a clean energy technology of the future? I think they do, but I think the part that they would highlight is the future. So people who are working on fusion, who I call star builders in the book, because they're not just scientists, they're entrepreneurs, they're all kinds of people, engineers, they would say this as well, I think, which is that the climate crisis, the energy crisis, is facing us right now. And fusion looks really, really good. It looks like something that we will want to do at some point for the human race. And I can say more about why that is in a moment. But right now, renewables work. They're a cheap source of energy. And nuclear fission works. And depending on what country you're in, can be cheaper or more expensive than renewables. But keeping existing fission reactors open is the cheapest form of energy around today. So I think Understandably, the conversation is very much at the moment about how do we put those into our energy portfolio. But if you think that climate change is a much bigger problem than the fact that the word nuclear is associated with the technology, and I think you know there are plenty of environmentalists who, who think like that, though there are some others who are wary of anything nuclear. Arthur, just to hitting on an important point here, I guess my question is, environmentalists are not crazy about fission based reaction, you know, the current nuclear technologies, even small modular reactors because of the nuclear waste and so on. Are fusion technologies being lumped in with nuclear energy more broadly, or are they being considered a separate class of potential future energy, clean energy? It's a great question. And I almost feel like fusion is so low on the radar at the moment that it's still up for grabs as to whether people see it as different or not. And I really hope that environmentalists do recognise that these are quite different technologies. Just because they happen to apply to the nucleus of an atom, um, much like MRI machines do, doesn't mean that they're a bad thing. And like any technology, you know, there are pros and cons. I think one issue is branding. You know, fission and fusion are just too close. It's so confusing. (laughs) I loved your star builders or mini suns. I think the industry should call themselves that. I think it would be hard to differentiate Mm -hmm. because the name is so similar. I want to get back to a question I don't think was fully answered, Arthur, so we want to put you on the spot. So, you know, we've got uh, COP26 in Glasgow coming up. As you know, there's uh, an urgency and an imperative to get to net zero by 2050, which is only 28 years away, which is on the inner side of the 30-year joke. So (laughs) are we going to see a pilot fusion reactor in the next 28 years? Again, look, this depends on investment will. And those are things that we all collectively as a society have to agree on. If I look at where we are today, that is definitely the trajectory that we're on. And there's talk of a experimental pilot plant producing the megawatts of energy called STEP in the UK coming in the 2040s. A lot of the private sector fusion firms are talking about pilot plants well before 2050. So if those ambitions are realised, then we will be there. But it depends if we're going to see this vision through and if there's more investment and more willpower to see it happen. I'd like to see it happen, but we just don't know yet. I think it's going to happen. But anyway, over to you, Jackie. Uh, One quick question, too. I I was fascinated, and you had a section in your book about how we probably are going to not 
reduce our use of energy over time as a planet and that we need a technology like this to meet the growing demands for energy and meet our climate goals. But you also talked about some other potential uses that will help humankind from this type of technology, like space exploration. Could you just quickly explain other uses? So uh, it's really great point about the, the energy demand. And I think one of the useful things, let's say we get fusion energy, not before 2050, but after, and net zero is kind of done. Why would fusion still be a good thing to do? I think there are a few reasons. And the first one I'll talk about is that just because we reach net zero doesn't mean that the climate battle is ended. We're stuck with a very high level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. But having access to a source of baseload power as kind of generous as fusion is, plentiful energy potentially, we can start to reverse that and suck some of that carbon dioxide back in and actually reverse that terrible curve that we've all seen of the CO2 concentration. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that I think fusion energy provides a really good long-run source of energy that's a real complement to renewables. So it takes up very little space. It's not as dependent on weather conditions and things. So it has some nice complementarities. And if there's a big natural disaster, you know, sometimes things like uh, wind or, or the sun can be impaired. But having an energy portfolio that has different kind of land needs is quite a good idea. Then the final thing, and you mentioned it, is that if we ever want to explore the solar system beyond Earth's backyard, we're not going to be doing it with a coal-fired rocket ship. We're not going to be doing it with fossil fuels. And actually, we're not going to be doing it with renewables either. Good as renewables are and as important as they're going to be to net zero, the only realistic source of energy that we have access to on Earth that has high enough energy density, so that means amount of energy per amount of fuel, the only one that's high enough on that measure that would be useful for kind of exploring the solar system for humans is nuclear fusion. So it's not only the power source of the stars, it's the only energy source that can take us to the stars too. Fascinating discussion. Yeah, thanks, Arthur. Thank you. And uh, thanks to our listeners. I do want to tell you, if you get the book, there's some Canadian content in there, including a Canadian researcher <laughs> and even a Canadian company pursuing this. So thanks for all that. Yeah, so the book is The Star Builders, Nuclear Fusion and the Race to Power the Planet by Arthur Turrell. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a blast. And thanks to our listeners. If you like this podcast, please rate us on the app that you listen to and tell someone else about us. For more ideas and insights, visit arcenergyinstitute.com.